welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Thanks so much, Jill and Natalie. And hello to you, wherever you're watching this now. Uh, It's great to be with you again today, although sadly, as you can probably see, on this occasion, it's not live from the studio because Sammy and I are currently having to shield here on the Isle of Wight. We're completely fine, nothing to worry about, just a a precaution in line with NHS guidelines. I hope you're okay too. Today, we're continuing our Strange Land series with one of the most difficult and downright Uh, disturbing verses in the entire Bible. To be honest, this is one of those bits of the Bible that preachers like me and Sunday school teachers and parents probably normally skip. But we're not going to do that today because this unlikely verse has actually, I think, got a lot to teach us about lament, uh, about anger, and ultimately about forgiveness. Before we start, I just want to warn you, there are some violent images in today's Bible reading. So if for any reason that could be a trigger for you, please feel free just to wander off now, make yourself a coffee, rejoin us in 20 minutes or so. And for the rest of us, this isn't actually going to be pleasant, but maybe that's the whole point. We're going to read Psalm 137 verses 4 to 9 in the King James Version. Here we go. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy, shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Wow. Psalm 137 stands out. Uh, Lyrically at the start, it's all nice. It's the rivers of Babylon. There's a sense of melancholy. But then out of nowhere, it sort of explodes in this unprocessed rage, this violent fantasy of babies' brains being beaten out against the rocks. That bit never made it into a Boney M song. Clearly, this is not the way and these are not the words of Jesus, who commands us to love our enemies Uh, to forgive those who sin against us and to be radical peacemakers in a broken world. So here's the question. Why has this appalling sentiment survived the millennia? Why were these words never redacted from the biblical text? Well, the church father Athanasius once said that the Bible doesn't always speak to us. Sometimes it speaks for us instead. That's an important distinction. Let me say it again. Sometimes the Bible speaks to us from God. Other times it speaks for us to God. And Psalm 137 verse 9 clearly isn't God speaking to us. He's not telling us to behave in this way. But it's speaking for us, expressing the bitterness and even the unfiltered rage we all sometimes feel. To put it another way, these verses say little about the disposition of God's heart and much about the condition of the human heart. They are a classic prayer of lament. 
Lament is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow, often in poetry and song, generally towards God. It's a cry for help in the midst of pain. It's the blues, and the Bible is full of it. For starters, there's an entire book called Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. And then there's Job wrestling with suffering without any easy answers. There's the prophet Habakkuk, who cries out, why is my pain continuous, my wound incurable? There's at least 50 psalms that are pure lament. How long, O Lord, will you utterly forget me? That's Psalm 13. Why, O Lord, do you stand aloof? Why hide in times of distress? That's Psalm 10. And then there's the lament Jesus himself quotes on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. That's Psalm 22. Lament is more than a technique for venting emotion. It's actually one of the fruits of a deepening spiritual life that has learnt to wrestle honestly with God in prayer and even in worship. The author Richard Foster says of lament, these prayers give us permission to shake our fist at God one moment and break into doxology the next. Now, I've been thinking about this week because I've been having to wire up uh, one of these outdoor lights And uh, to do this, I've had to obviously strip the cable. Here we are. Here's the cable. And as you know, you've got the three. You've got the positive. You've got the live wire. So that's the brown one there. You've got the neutral. That's the negative. And then you've got the earth wire that keeps us all safe. It's only by combining the live wire and uh, the neutral, the positive and the negative, that I'm going to get a flow of power and light. I need the negative just as much as I need the positive. That's a powerful picture, I think, of lament. We need the negative. We need the tears. We need the shaking of our fist at God, as well as the positive, the doxology and the praise. I mentioned Psalm 22 earlier, and it does precisely this. It ebbs and flows between pain and praise, between expressions of hurt and expressions of hope. Verse one, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse three, you're enthroned as the Holy One. Verse six, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone. Then verse nine says, yet you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you. We're all wired differently. Some of us are live wires. We are naturally more positive, more optimistic. The cup's always half full. And others are more like eel than tigger. For us, the cup's always half empty. And that's precisely why we need one another. I want to speak to both groups. First, let me speak to the natural optimists, those of you who probably don't find it easy to lament. The late, great Leonard Cohen famously sang, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Maybe some of us need to stop trying to give God a perfect offering and start simply being ourselves, warts and all, cracked in prayer. There's a painting technique known as chiaroscuro. 
which deploys dramatic darkness to accentuate light and to create a sense of volume. You'll have seen it in works by Rembrandt, Caravaggio, and so on. Actually, you've seen it probably in your own life because God himself paints your portrait at Chiaroscuro. He takes the darkness and the brilliance together. If there's no darkness in your story, if there's only primary colours, you're a Disney cartoon, not a Caravaggio. I love reading biographies, loads of biographies here. Uh, and the best ones, I can tell you, are always the ones where there's some failure, some brokenness, some pain in the person's life. Christ's vision for your life isn't sweetness and life, light. It's not twee. It's not the sound of music without the Nazis just kind of skipping around, dressed in curtains, yodeling in the mountains. God's design for your life is to co-create with you a compelling narrative, a great adventure, which will have darkness as well as light. Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. So we shouldn't pretend it's all easy. But then he continues, take heart. I have overcome the world. So right there, we've got the paradox. We have got the hurt and the hope the negative and the positive connected together in true lament. Now let me speak to the other group. I want to speak to those of you who are more like me and a bit inclined to be negative. Those who probably listened to the Smiths whilst your sister was listening to Kylie Minogue. The theologian Walter Brueggemann says that lament is breaking the numbness by the admission of pain and loss. When pain is brought to speech, he says, it turns to energy. Isn't that exactly what we're talking about with electricity and the two poles? And he says, when pain is not brought to speech, it turns to despair. It's fascinating to listen to the way that African-American slaves gave speech to their suffering through spirituals. These powerful laments contextualised the pain of slavery in the hope of the gospel. They connected the negative and the positive in such a powerful way that they gave rise to gospel, to the blues, to jazz, to soul, to rock, and therefore to the Smiths and even to Kylie Minogue. It's an interesting consideration that the psalmist's refusal to sing by the rivers of Babylon at the start of Psalm 137 might actually be linked to the eruption of pain at the end, that there's something therapeutic about singing that diminishes despair. Psalm 137 has to primarily be understood as a prayer of lament, not so much as God speaking to us, but as the Bible speaking for us, showing us how to be radically honest with God in prayer, honest about the hurt that we feel and also about the hope we have in Jesus. But of course, when we come to the closing verses of this psalm, there's something else that kicks in. The psalmist here isn't just feeling sad, he's feeling angry. And before we just kind of sort of brush it under the carpet, let's understand why he's so angry. The Edomites, who are like his cousin, have betrayed Israel whilst the Babylonians have destroyed Jerusalem. They've committed genocide. They've trafficked thousands into exile, where the psalmist is now writing. They've even, we must assume, killed Jewish children against the rocks. And so understandably, that's an image that the psalmist can't get out of his head. He's almost replaying it obsessively. He's wanting revenge. He's desiring an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Who amongst us hasn't done that same thing? It's easy, isn't it, to hold on to past grievances, to replay in our minds the video of the ways in which we've been hurt, to get fixated with fantasies of hurting those who've hurt us. And we're living in a time like that. We're living in a time of incendiary angry. I can't anger. I can't remember a time ever when people were just so cross with violent protests in the streets, road rage, revenge porn, escalating domestic violence and social media. Some of you will see I posted a thing on uh, on social media last week just honouring two good things that two politicians had done. One was a left-wing politician, one was a right-wing politician, and just honouring good things they'd done. And people were so upset. Suddenly I found myself getting shot at from both sides. Uh, And so I I followed up with another post saying, uh, look, why can't we just honour what's good in those that we disagree with? And and that was like I'd insulted the Queen or announced the start of the Third World War. Then people got really angry. Everyone just seemed so angry. How on earth are we to not be like that? How are we to be peacemakers? How are we to be followers of Jesus in an aggressive culture? Well, the Apostle Paul gives some really great practical advice. In Ephesians 4, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down whilst you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anger, he says, can lead to sin. It can uh, provide a foothold for the devil in our lives. So we've got to deal with it rigorously and daily. But Paul doesn't say here anger itself is actually sin. He says that it can easily lead to sin. Some anger is healthy. Jesus got angry in the temple, didn't he? When he furiously overturned the tables of the moneylenders. Jesus got angry with the Pharisees. He called them a brood of vipers. Not very nice. It's right to get angry with injustice and hypocrisy. Controlled anger can also be an appropriate response to trauma, a key to mental health. This may be, well, what's happening here in this psalm. But be careful, says Paul. Anger is powerful. It's like sex. It can be used for good or for evil, and it must be managed very carefully so it doesn't become destructive in our lives. Many of you will know Maggie Ellis, wife of Roger, who's such a blessing to us as a church. Maggie's a distinguished leadership psychologist. She's a psychosexual counsellor. She's worked for many years uh, with the survivors of incest and rape. Maggie is just a really sweet person. Uh, She's gentle. Her parents were missionaries. Uh, She isn't someone that you'd expect to be struggling a lot with a desire for rage and revenge. But she told me once that she actually finds, and it's really surprised me, enormous comfort in the bits of the Bible that describe God's vengeance, his anger, and even his judgment. She said that at the end of a day, hearing the most shocking stories of manifest evil, she kind of needs to know that it won't go on forever, that God will ultimately resist, thwart, and punish those who hurt others in such evil ways. She says she finds it easier to forgive and to live at peace personally because she believes that vengeance belongs to God. 
Maggie's learnt to manage her anger, not to bury it and deny it, but rather to entrust it to God's justice. The Apostle Paul says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. We can all agree with that bit. But then he continues, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. That's Romans 12. So here's a question we don't often ask in church. What might it mean to leave room for God's wrath, God's vengeance against my enemies? And how do we reconcile that New Testament teaching with Christ's call to love and forgive? So let's think about forgiveness. You've probably seen on the news that Peter Sutcliffe, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper, died last week. I was so struck by an interview with the son of his first victim, Wilma McCann, on the BBC. The appalling loss of uh, this woman meant that her son, uh, Rich, at the age of six, uh, was propelled into a downward spiral of abuse at the hands of his father. And he ended up plotting to revenge his mum's killer. He says, when I was stationed with the army in Germany one day, someone showed me a magazine with Peter Sutcliffe on the cover. There was so much pent up anger inside me that when I saw his face, I simply could not contain it anymore. That same evening, I ended up wreaking havoc. I smashed fences, nicked a motorbike and damaged a car. Isn't this exactly the kind of rage that we're reading about in Psalm 137, violence begetting violence. And then Richard McCann goes on, following that incident, I had a breakdown and was medically discharged from the army. Even though I subsequently managed to get a decent job, I started taking drugs and ended up serving a six-month jail sentence for drug dealing. And then in 2010, he told the BBC that his life changed. He had what he called a spiritual awakening. And it came because he was invited to a lecture given by Archbishop Desmond Tutu on forgiveness. He says, that day I finally forgave my mother's killer. I'm no longer carrying around remorse or bitterness. Richard has learnt the hard way that bitterness is self-destructive. It, it's a poison you drink hoping the other person's going to die. There's a member of this church, Lynn's Hendrick, who testified earlier this year how the very first time she came to Emmaus Road, she heard me use that exact analogy about the poison and realised she needed to forgive her ex-husband, even though he had been violent and controlling towards her. They were separated at this point. Sadly, he's subsequently died. And it's important to know if you're in any kind of dangerous relationship, forgiveness doesn't mean putting up with abuse, okay? You need to get safe first and process forgiveness later. But anyway, Lynn's that day began a process of forgiving her ex and giving her life to Christ and really finding freedom. That's what Richard McCann did with his mother's killer. That's what ultimately the people of Israel learned to do with the Babylonians. They stopped seeking terrible revenge, which we've got in Psalm 137, and started seeking actually to be a blessing even to their enemies. So I want us just to respond now to this simple message. I think for some of us today, there's an invitation to learn to lament. Maybe this week you could decide to just take a walk and be radically honest with God about some of the things you're really feeling, some of your 
struggles, some of your questions, disappointments, maybe some of your doubts. I felt like God spoke to me about someone who, growing up, you felt a massive pressure to always say the right thing and to rationalise your emotions. And I believe your Father in heaven wants to say to you, he's inviting you into a messier, less polite relationship with him. And remember that analogy of the wiring. Maybe we need to combine hurt with a little hope. Maybe some of us need to make space for worship in lockdown. For many, I think there's an invitation to relinquish resentment, to forgive. I wonder if the Lord's calling you to forgive somebody. I know it's a cliche, but maybe on social media, you've become very harsh and you need to repent and change of that. Maybe there are very complex relationships in your own family and the Lord is inviting you just to get your heart right in anticipation of Christmas only Well, it's kind of a month today. Whatever it is, the Lord invites us to deal with our anger by, first of all, being honest, learn to lament, learn to combine the positive and the negative, the hurt and the hope together. Secondly, let's learn that uh, it's okay to be angry, but we must control our anger. We must deal with it or it will be destructive. And finally, Let's learn to forgive. Let's learn to trust God with vengeance so that we can live free from those who've hurt us. I want to finish now by just reading to you Psalm chapter 40, which is another of the famous Psalms of lament. It goes like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Amen. God bless you, my friends.